The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Welcome back uh, for our ongoing study of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And today we are going to pick up the narrative at Romans chapter 6. We'll go ahead and read through the first 14 verses of this chapter. We're going to come back to Romans 5 because... As you know, uh, Paul didn't write his letters with any kind of chapter division. So the argument or the flow of his teaching from Romans 5 flows right into chapter 6. But we're going to focus on chapter 6, but we need to go back to chapter 5 and set the stage. But chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his." We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. But do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are no longer under law, but under grace. One of the wonderful things about the Apostle Paul is that he can anticipate some of the objections that are going to be brought against the gospel that he is proclaiming. And he anticipates those arguments or those objections, and he prepares for them. And that's exactly what we see him doing here in Romans chapter 6. Paul knows that an argument is going to be brought against him, particularly an argument against this message that we are saved by grace alone. He anticipates that argument, and that is what he is dealing with here in the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. But before we get to those, we need to go back and talk a little bit about this whole subject of grace and the importance of grace. Uh, Paul uses that term over and over again in his writings, 
He says that we are saved by grace, through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. And that, of course, is exactly his argument here in these chapters from Romans. Paul is saying that you and I were enemies of God, we were living in opposition to God, and we could do nothing to end the conflict. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made peace with us by sending his son Jesus Christ on our behalf to pay in full the price for our sins. And Paul says this is all of grace. Grace being God's undeserved, unearned favor. There's nothing that we can do to earn it or to achieve it. It is simply a free gift. Now, most of you know that. You've heard this message preached over and over again every Sunday in one way or another from the pulpit of St. Philip's Church. You've heard about the doctrine of grace. And yet, because we have heard it so much and for so long, grace has become for many people, and I pointed this out last week, somewhat pedestrian. We sing about amazing grace, but for many people, grace, let's just go ahead and admit it, is boring. They don't deny its importance from a theological standpoint, but in terms of its practical impact on their lives, most people don't think about grace at all. They don't deny that it's important, they just don't really see its relevance. Now, we said there's a reason for this. We said, in fact, there are a number of reasons for this. One of the reasons that grace is no longer amazing is because people really don't have a deep sense of their own sinfulness, their own depravity. When you recognize that you're really a wretched individual, uh, when you begin to realize that, then you begin to love God's grace. You begin to fall in love with his mercy and his compassion toward the sinner. But if you think you're a pretty good person, again, you really don't see the value of grace. Okay, God is, is gracious toward me, and I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most people. And as I said before, as God grades on the curve, so therefore I think I'm going to be all right in the end. So one of the reasons grace is no longer amazing to us is because we don't have a deep sense of our own depravity. Incidentally, in the past, you know, people often pray for revival. I know that we have a number of people in this room who on a daily basis pray for revival, and they get together right before this class, and they pray for revival. But I want to point out to you that every great revival that has ever broken out in the life of the church, since the beginning, since the time of the book of Acts, every great revival in the history of the church has always been preceded by a time of intense repentance. In other words, you're never going to have revival until you first have repentance, until people are brought to a deep sense of their own unworthiness and a sense of the need for a Savior. Then revival begins to break out. So if you're praying for revival, hallelujah, but understand that you're also praying for repentance beforehand. So a sense of our own depravity, a sense of God's holiness, that while God is, God is merciful and compassionate, God is also the Holy One. He is a God of justice, and He will not overlook sin. This is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul says, if we do not have a sense of our own unworthiness and a sense of Christ's greatness, then what we do is we crucify over and over again the Son of Man. So we need to have a deep sense of our sinfulness 
a deep sense of God's holiness and his justice and his righteousness, a deep sense of our own inability to earn God's favor. We have to understand that we're not only sinners, we are powerless. This is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul describes us as being dead in our trespasses and in our sins in his letter to the Ephesians. Dead. Paul doesn't simply say that we're sick in our sin. He says we're dead. And that's a very powerful phrase because dead people can't do anything. They can't even respond to the gospel message. When Mary and Martha stood outside the tomb of Lazarus weeping for their brother, they could have spent the rest of their lives crying for him to come forth from that tomb, but he could not do it. And he could not do it. Why? Because he was dead. Jesus had to come and do for him what he could not do for himself, make him alive again. And what was true of Lazarus physically is true of us spiritually. Paul says we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But God, because of his great love for us, even when we were dead, made us alive in Christ Jesus. So when you begin to realize that you're a great sinner, that God is a great and just God, when you begin to realize that you are powerless to help yourself, but that God, who is rich in mercy, helps you, the helpless, then all of a sudden, grace takes on a whole new look. It no longer is boring, it is amazing. Karl Barth, I think I may have mentioned this to you before, Karl Barth was the great theologian of the 20th century, certainly one of the most instrumental and influential theologians of the 20th century. Everybody who's come after Karl Barth has had to deal with him in one way or the other. But Karl Barth was um, once preaching in a prison, and uh, he preached the message of grace, and he said it was the most receptive audience he ever had. He had preached all over the world in all kinds of churches and cathedrals, and he said he often found the pious to be rather disinterested in the message of grace. He said, but when he went into the prison, and he preached to those who were in captivity. He said they were very receptive. He said the most receptive audience he ever had. And it was because he said no one had to persuade them that they needed a savior. They knew it. And the same must be true for us. Now I think to really appreciate grace, we need to understand a little bit about how grace operates. We know what it is. It's God's undeserved, unearned favor. But let's just take a little bit of time and actually look at how grace operates in a practical sense in our own lives, especially in light of the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. How does grace operate? Well, if it's going to be God's grace, it's going to be God's grace from start to finish. It's going to be God's grace from stem to stern. And this is very clear in the Bible. How does grace work? Well, first thing that grace does is that it elects us. Now, I know that this whole doctrine of election, predestination, calling, all of that is a big subject, and eventually we're going to get to that. In fact, Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 9. But you get a little hint of it even here at this point in Romans chapters 5 and 6. But the first thing I want to say is that grace elects. Now, what do I mean that grace elects? I mean that grace acts even before we have done anything to deserve it. That's the very definition of grace. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. 
Some people are auditory learners, some people are visual learners, so I can tell you, but perhaps seeing it makes it even more powerful. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 describes the human condition. Somebody asked me a question about our natural state. This, Paul says, is our natural state from a spiritual point of view. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Most of us, when we think of ourselves, think of ourselves as children of God. This is a very popular notion, became very popular in the 19th century. The idea of the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God, which means that we're all God's children, right? I want you to understand, that is not a biblical notion that we are all God's children. We are all God's creatures, that much is true. That is to say, God created us and so we are his creatures. But the Bible is very clear, you only become a child of God, a son of God, or a daughter of God by adoption. That's what John chapter 1 says. He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. But to whoever who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not by natural means or the will of a husband, but children born of God. So Paul says a number of things about us as human beings. First thing he says is that we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins in which we used to live. In other words, we're spiritual zombies. We're still walking around and talking and conducting business and so forth, but as far as our relationship with God is concerned, we are dead. Dead. This is as though we don't exist in that regard. We are spiritually dead. And we're not only dead, he says we are under God's judgment. Now this is just a repeat of what he says in Romans chapter 1, isn't it? We are children of wrath. Why? Because of our wickedness. He says because of the ways we used to walk. We followed the world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in what? The passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's how we lived. We did our own thing. We followed our own passions. We did our own thing. And as a consequence, we were dead, spiritually speaking, in terms of our relationship with God. And moreover, we are under God's wrath. Now, that is a bleak picture of the human condition, folks. And don't get mad at me for saying it. That's the Apostle Paul saying it right there. That is the description of the human condition. Your condition and my condition. I don't care where you come from. I don't care who your parents or your grandparents are. This is the human condition. And you ask the question, well, what can be done about that? Well, one thing is very clear. There's nothing we can do about it. Why? Because we're dead. Because we're dead. It is a very bleak portrayal of the human condition. But look at verse 4. But God. 
There are perhaps no two greater words in all of Scripture than those. But God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Why did he love us? Because we're lovable? No. Everything he's described here is unlovable. But he loves us in spite of the fact that we are not lovable. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I, I love the way that Paul wants to just clinch the nail. How are you saved? By grace. And, and by the way, this is not your own doing, Paul says. It is a gift of God. I mean it, not a result of works. So that what? No one may boast. No one. No one may boast. That's why I say that grace elects. Grace acts because we are powerless to do so. So salvation begins with God. This is an important thing. Regeneration precedes faith. Not the other way around. Many people think if you have faith, you are born again. What Paul is teaching us here is that actually God makes us alive first, and only then are we capable of having faith. That's why faith itself is a gift and not a work. Because dead people can't have faith. So God has to act on the front end, and that's what he does, by making us alive even when we are dead. Now, even then, from time to time, we will wander off, won't we? And this is something else that grace does. It not only makes us alive even when we were dead, grace pursues us. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that God is the hound of heaven. He pursues us. He gets our scent, and he goes after us. And you can see this in the life of so many people. Think about the Apostle Paul. Here was the Apostle Paul, a man who was living in opposition to Christ. Now, he thought he was serving God, but in reality, he wasn't. But God had a plan for Paul's life. Do you remember Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus? Do you remember what happened? We're told that he was on his way to Damascus. He had been deputized by the Sanhedrin. He was going there to arrest Christians to drag them back to Jerusalem for trial and execution. Damascus was 110 miles or so north of Jerusalem. So Paul's on his way, and he encounters Christ. He has that Damascus Road experience. He's knocked off his horse onto the ground, and he is blinded. And he hears that voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he replies, who are you, Lord? And the voice comes back, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Well, that was a revelation for Paul. At that point, he realized what he deserved was God's judgment. He should have been turned into a cinder there on the road, but God didn't do that. Instead, we're told that he was led by the hand into the city, 
to a place on Straight Street. I love the fact that we actually get the address. He's led into the house of a man on Straight Street, and there he sits in darkness, contemplating his fate, contemplating all of the terrible things that he had done, presiding over the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and so forth. And God calls on a man by the name of Ananias, and he says, Ananias, I want you to go, and I want you to lay your hands on a man who has been blinded, who is living on Straight Street in Damascus. Go lay your hands on him that he might receive his sight. Ananias says, yes, sir. What's the guy's name? Saul of Tarsus. Oh, well, I think you want somebody else. I'd rather not do that. I've heard about this man. I know what he does to people like me. I'd prefer not to go. And do you remember what the Lord says to Ananias at that point? It's very important. He says, you go. This man is my chosen instrument. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. God chose Saul. Saul didn't choose God. And in spite of his wickedness, what? God pursued him. And God has been pursuing sinners from the very beginning. You'll recall the story of the fall in the book of Genesis chapter 3, that Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. And what did they do? Well, immediately their eyes were opened. They recognized they were naked, and they went and hid themselves in the trees of the garden. And the Lord came crying out, Adam, where are you? That's what grace does. Grace continues to pursue us. It continues to look for us even when we're hiding from God. That should be a great encouragement to those of you who have attempted to raise your children as Christians and find that they have wandered far afield of the faith. Understand this, that even though you may not be able to bring them back, God's grace is a pursuing grace. He does not give up on them. It's a powerful illustration of this in Luke's gospel. So if you will, keep your finger in Romans and turn to Luke. Say it's a powerful illustration. Actually, it's several powerful illustrations. These are Jesus' parables. You know all about them. Let's just go ahead and read through the first two, and I'll just summarize the last one. So Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. By the way, those two are always clumped together. Nothing has changed. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, goes on, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she is found, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over the one sinner who repents. 
And that story goes into a third parable. And what's that parable about? Lost sons. Two lost sons, not just one. But you know, the first one demands his inheritance even while his father is alive. His father reluctantly gives him the money. He goes out and he squanders it on loose living. I don't need to describe for you what that is. I think you have a pretty good idea of what that looks like. He goes off and he squanders all of his money and he reaches a very low point. So low, in fact, that here he is, a Jewish man, having to feed hogs, pigs. And he comes to his senses and he says to himself, I would be better off as a slave in my father's house than this. So I will go home. And he goes home. But he doesn't know what kind of reception he's going to receive. I mean, this was Middle Eastern culture in the first century. And to shame your parent, that was a serious offense. In some places, it was punishable by death. His father had every right, and everybody would have expected him to slam the door in the boy's face. But that's not what happens. We're told that as he's making his way home, while he was still, I love this part, a long way off, his father saw him and came out to meet him and put a robe around his shoulders and a ring upon his finger and he killed a fatted calf. That's the picture right there by Rembrandt. The prodigal son. The fact that his father saw him a long way off, you know what that tells us? That means that the father had been watching for him and waiting for him every single day. You know, for some of us, out of sight, out of mind. That was never the case for this father. He was always looking. And of course, all of these parables are designed to teach us that we are the lost thing. And God is that good shepherd who goes out and seeks the one that is lost. God is that woman who will diligently sweep the house until he finds the lost coin precious to him. And God is the father in this story who is always watching, always waiting, always tender and ready to receive the son home. That is what grace does. It pursues, it seeks. So there's grace at the beginning. There's grace in the middle. Grace does something else. What does it do? It pardons. Like the pardoning of a prisoner. Think about Jesus hanging on the cross. There were two thieves on either side. Thieves is really not the best translation. These men were men of violence. That's why they were being condemned. It wasn't just as though they had, you know, were petty thieves and they were being crucified for that. Crucifixion was a serious offense. It was for capital crimes. They were violent men. And as Jesus is hanging there on the cross... One of the thieves is railing against him and saying, if you're the son of God, help us. You're supposed to be the Messiah. Well, here we are, all of us suffering. If you've got power, do something about it. But the other one says what? Let him alone. We are guilty. First thing is this. He acknowledges his guilt. We are guilty. This man is innocent. He's done nothing. And then having acknowledged his guilt, he places his trust in Jesus and he says this. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Well, too late for you, my friend. You should have thought about that before this. No time for you to repent. No time for you to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. No time for you to clean your plate. What does Jesus say? He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
This is troubling to many people. I've got to be honest with you. They'll say, well, I have tried to live a holy life for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, and this fellow at the very end gets in by the skin of his teeth. That's right. And you know why? Because it's grace. And truth be known, if you get in, it will only be because of grace. So grace elects, grace pursues, grace pardons, and grace perseveres with us. Grace perseveres with us. Take a look at Matthew 10. Now, when you first read this, you think to yourself, oh, that's, that's a little troubling. But I want to show that it's actually encouraging. We're going to start at verse 16. The pertinent verse is 22, but we're going to look at verse 16. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. What he says here applies to you and to me alike for those living in the last days. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in the synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated all for my name's sake. That's what it's going to be like, Jesus says, for those who are his followers in the last days. What are the last days? I'm going to actually preach on this in two weeks, but what are the last days? As far as the New Testament is concerned, the last days are that whole period of time between Jesus' ascension and his return in glory. So you're living in the last days. Now, whether these are the last of the last days, we don't know, but we're in the last days. The next thing on God's agenda, and the next thing on his calendar is Christ's return in glory. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be tough in these last days. And my goodness, don't we see that? Don't we see Christians being marginalized even in formerly Christian nations? But look at what Jesus says in verse 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now you say, oh, will I endure? <laughs> when it comes right down to it, will I endure? Well, if you're a believer, you will endure. Not because you are strong, not because you are capable, but because God is working in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is what we call the perseverance of the saints. It's one of the five points of Reformed theology. What are the five points of Reformed theology? I'll give them to you quickly. You can always remember them because of the word tulip. All right, tulip, but it's all about grace. T means total depravity. That is to say, there is no aspect of the human person that has not been in some way tainted or marred by sin. Total depravity. Now, that doesn't mean we're utterly depraved. Thanks be to God. It just means that there's no aspect of our being that has not been tainted by sin. You, unconditional election. 
God saves us, not by virtue of anything that we do. Unconditional. L, limited atonement. We'll come back to that at another time. But what it basically means is that those God has called, his death is sufficient to save. I, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. That when God calls, try as we might, God will accomplish his purpose in calling. And the final thing is this. Those whom God calls, he continues to work in their life, even to the end, the perseverance of the saints. The saints, the true saints, and by the way, saints are not just people who've done great things and achieved a coveted status. The saints are all those who are in Christ Jesus. They will persevere to the end. Why? Because it is Christ within them persevering on their behalf. So one of the things that you see is that grace starts and grace ends and ultimately grace saves. How does grace save? It saves us, first of all, from the penalty of sin. Sin's penalty. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Grace saves us from sin's penalty. Grace saves us from sin's power. The very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. But when Christ is within you, He gives you the power to overcome. And one day, when we are at home with God in heaven, we will be saved from sin's presence. And Paul says it's all of grace. Now, I want to flip ahead in Romans for just a minute to Romans chapter 8. And I want to show you how this works out. We'll look at this in fuller detail when we get to Romans chapter 8, probably in about three years. But (laughs) until we get there, I want you to take a look. Because Romans chapter 8 is one of those wonderful chapters of the Bible that everybody loves. It's an encouraging chapter. It's one of the reasons why it's always read at funeral services. It's one of the assigned texts. It's so encouraging. But where do we pick up the text? We generally pick up the text at verse 21, 31, excuse me. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is he who justified, who is to condemn? And you go on down there to the bottom to verse 37, and you read these words. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everybody says, hallelujah, amen. That's wonderful. But let me tell you something. The only reason we can say hallelujah to those verses is because of what Paul says prior to this. Prior to this. Begin at verse 26. Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. There it is. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. How many of you have ever been in a place like that in your life where you don't even know what to pray for at this point? You're so desperate. Anybody ever been there? Well, here's a little bit of grace for you. 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And here's that wonderful passage. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. That's one of my favorite, if not my favorite passage in all the Bible. But somebody might ask the question, how do we know that? How do we know that God ultimately is going to work all things, even the tragedies, disasters, disappointments in our lives, how do we know for certain that God is going to work all of those things together for good? It's a wonderful sentiment, but how could we know for certain? It's what follows. It's what follows. We know it, Paul says, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he will also glorify. I call these the five golden links of salvation. They form an unbreakable chain that binds us to Christ. Look at the words. They're very powerful words. First thing is foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, that is to say, took note of, he did what? Predestined. And those he predestined, he what? Conformed to the image of his son. And those he conformed, he called. Those he called, he justifies. And those he justified, he what? He glorifies. Now, I put conformed in there. That makes six chains, six links. But really, the driving force behind this text are those words foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And what I want you to notice is that who is the active participant in all of this? God. Who does the foreknowing? God does. Those whom he foreknew. Who does the predestining? God. Who does the conforming? God. Who does the calling? God. Who does the justifying? God. Who does the glorifying? God. He does it all from start to finish. Why? Because we're dead. But he's rich in mercy. And it's because God does it all and we do nothing at all. That's how we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's interesting, it's after Paul talks about God doing it all, then he goes on to say in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do we know God's for us? Because he's done all of this. We've done nothing. We've earned nothing. He called. He predestined. He conforms. He justifies. He glorifies. He does it all. And if God is doing that for us, even when we don't deserve it, that's how we know that nothing, nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even ourselves. Now, when you begin to understand that, all of a sudden, grace takes on an entirely different perspective, doesn't it? 
That's when boring grace suddenly begins to become amazing grace. The grace that made me alive even when I was dead. The grace that pardoned me. The grace that pursues me. And the grace that one day will bring me home. Amazing grace. Now that's powerful stuff. But as I said, Paul knows that somebody's going to object. There's always somebody who will object. So go back now to Romans chapter 6. Paul is talking about the greatness of God's grace, our only hope, the only means of our salvation. But then he begins chapter 6 with a rhetorical question. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That was the objection that many people said. All right, Paul. So you're saved by grace, not by works, not by virtue of anything you do. So if God's going to save us, well, he's going to save us. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we live our lives. We can go ahead and continue to save because God is ultimately going to save us, not by virtue of anything we do. We're going to be saved by his grace. That was the argument that was brought against Paul. Incidentally, it's the argument that is oftentimes brought against all of those who are the descendants of Paul in terms of the preachers. This was the argument that was brought against St. Augustine on more than one occasion. This was the argument that was certainly brought against Martin Luther. It was the argument that was brought against George Whitfield in the 18th century. If we're saved by grace, we might as well live like hell because it doesn't make any difference. Well, if you think about it, it's a legitimate question. The objection is this. Grace will leave to licentiousness. Paul, this message that we are saved by grace alone, apart from any human effort, any good works, that is going to live, lead to antinomianism. Now, that's a big word. It means lawlessness. People are not going to want to live holy lives. But that's a failure to understand what Paul is really teaching here. See, Paul teaches there can never be justification. We, have, we are justified by grace through faith, but there can never be justification without regeneration. Those two things go hand in hand. Justification and regeneration. And that's why he responds the way he does. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abide? Verse 2 by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Justification can never be divorced from regeneration. Should we continue to live in sin? By no means, Paul says, we have died to sin. Now, what does Paul mean by that expression, we have died to sin? Because I think most of us would probably agree, we're still struggling with it. Maybe you're not, but I am. I struggle with sin on a daily basis. And Paul says we can't continue in sin. Why? Because we've died to it. What does that mean? 
Well, there have been a lot of different explanations that have been proposed over the centuries. I want to suggest to you four that are very popular these days, but four that I think are nevertheless wrong. The first interpretation is that because we have died to sin, what that really means is that Christians are unresponsive to sin. This has been the view of some people down through the ages, that true Christians, if they're really legitimate, if, they're the, if they're the genuine article, are simply unresponsive to sin. Sin and temptation may come your way, but it just sort of glances off you. You know, if you see a, a dog lying by the side of the road, and the dog is just lying there and he's unresponsive and you don't know whether he's dead or alive, you can go over there and nudge him with your foot and if the dog jumps up and wags his tail or runs off, you know, well, he's alive. But if you kick the dog and nothing happens, what? He's unresponsive, he's dead. You can take a needle and poke a dead body and it's unresponsive. It doesn't react to any kind of stimuli. And that's what many people are saying, that if you've died to Christ, you are simply unresponsive to sin. Was that what Paul meant? Paul seemed to struggle with sin. Even after his conversion, he seemed to struggle with sin. So I think clearly that is just not the right interpretation for the simple reason that that's not the experience of most people. The second interpretation is that Paul really means we should die to sin. Uh, this is very popular in some holiness movements. They'll talk about crucifying the old man. You've got to crucify the old man. That's what you've got to do. That's what Paul means. We have to die to sin. You have to crucify the old man. You have to get rid of sin in your life. Here's the problem with that interpretation. Paul doesn't say we should die to sin. He says we have already died to sin. It's not something that is going to happen to us or is happening to us. He says it is something that has already happened to us. It's in the past tense. Third explanation, it was given actually by John Wesley, and for that reason alone, it deserves a hearing. What Wesley basically said is that what Paul is describing is the process of sanctification. He's telling us that Christians are dying daily to sin. Well, that should be true in our lives if we are growing in our relationship with Christ and in our knowledge of Christ, yes, we should be coming more like him on a daily basis. And sin should be more apparent in our lives. But listen, if your experience is anything like the Apostle Paul's or like mine, one of the things you notice is the closer you get to Christ, the more apparent your sins become to you. And not only that, but Wesley falls into the same trap as that previous explanation. He's saying that this is an ongoing thing, and what Paul says is we can no longer continue into sin. Why? Because we died to it. It's a past tense. It's something that has already happened to us. It's not something that will continue to happen to us. Here's the fourth interpretation. This one was given by Charles Hodge, the, Charles Hodge, the great um, Princeton theologian. He basically said that the Christian cannot continue to sin. That's what Paul says, that we cannot continue to sin because we have renounced it. Now, what does he mean by that, we have renounced it? Well, it's like being married. We've been talking about being married a lot in this class lately. When you come to be married, you'll stand before the priest, husband, wife, or bride and groom, about to be husband and wife, and you'll take your vows, and you'll say, John... Will you take Mary to be your wife? 
Will you love her, honor, keep her, in sickness and in health? And what? Forsaking all others, be faithful only unto her. That's the idea. You're going to forsake all others, which means you may like somebody else, you may be attracted to somebody else, but you cannot go with somebody else. Why? Because you have forsaken all others. And Charles Hodge says that's what Paul means. He doesn't mean that we won't be tempted to sin. We simply won't do it. Why? Because we have made the conscious decision to forsake it. Now, certainly, there is a great deal of truth in that. But here again is the problem. When it comes to God's grace, it's what God does, not what we do. Paul says, we have died to sin. It's something that God has done to us, not something that we do to ourselves. So what does Paul mean when he says we cannot continue into sin because we have died with Christ? Well, it's interesting. He ties that idea of death to the idea of baptism. You understand that in the early church, when people were baptized, they were not sprinkled. This was no, you know, Methodist sprinkling or Episcopal pouring. Um, this was immersion, like the Baptists do. Uh, they were immersed in the water, and going under the water symbolized what? Death. Being buried. And coming up out of the water symbolized what? Resurrection. New life. Now, we've talked about the fact in here that the very act of baptizing somebody doesn't save them. But it represents death, and it represents new life. And this becomes clear when you realize that in the New Testament, there are two Greek words that are often translated as baptize, but they mean two different things. One is the word bapto, and one is the word baptizo. Looks like baptizo up there on the screen, but it's baptizo. Now, both of those words are used, and sometimes were used by subsequent translators interchangeably. But they realized they were two different Greek words, but they didn't understand the distinction. But in antiquity, there was a distinction between those two words. And I guess it wasn't until about the 19th century that scholars really began to understand what the difference was. And it's one of those little, wonderful little stories. How did they find out the difference between bapto and baptizo? It was because of a man by the name of Nicander. Uh, Nicander was a scholar in the ancient world, he was a scientist, and he had in his collection a recipe, get this, for making pickles. Making pickles. And in that recipe, he uses both of these words, but all of a sudden, it opened the minds of scholars to understand the distinction between bapto and baptizo. He said that when you make a pickle, you take the cucumber, or the vegetable, whatever it is, and you baptize it, in the hot water. You have to put it in hot water. And the word that he used there was bapto. He said, then you take it and you baptize it, immerse it in the brine, in the vinegar solution. And the word that he used there was baptizo. And all of a sudden, scholars understood the distinction. To bapto something, to baptize it in that sense, is simply to dip it in something momentarily. But when you baptizo something, what you do is you dip it in the brine and a permanent change takes place. 
the pickle or the cucumber becomes completely associated with the brine. You know, when, when a pickle is pickled, it can't be unpickled. It's as simple as that. It has become permanently changed. Well, what is interesting is that that's the word that Paul uses here for baptized. He uses the word baptizo. He says, you and I have been united. We've been baptized into Christ, which is to say we have been permanently united to him. We talked about this last week. Christ in you, you in Christ. We say this every Sunday, right before communion. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that what? We may evermore dwell in him and he in us. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, by God's grace, you have been permanently united to Christ. You are not your own anymore. A change has been taking place. And therefore, you've got to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You've been united in his death, Paul says, you are now united in his resurrection. And that's why you'll notice what he says beginning at verse 11. He says, you are therefore to reckon yourselves dead to sin. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You have been united to Christ. You've been permanently associated with him. You cannot continue to sin. Why? Because Christ cannot continue to sin. Doesn't mean that you won't, but it means that you now have the power not to. This is Paul's recipe for sanctification. How do you learn to live a holy life? by realizing that you are no longer what you once were. You know, it's interesting. When you're a child, you cannot wait to grow up. You ever notice that? I've had four teenagers in the house, and I have learned. When they are 13, they cannot wait to be 16. Why? so they can get that driver's license. And then when they're 16, they cannot wait to be what? 21, so they can what? Drink. Vote, well, you might want to drink before you vote. But at any rate, and then you can't wait until you get out of college so that you can what? Be on your own, do your own thing. And then you reach the point where you're 40, and boy, you really wish you could go back and be 13 again, don't you? You get nostalgic. Oh, it was so much better when I was a kid. Because all of life's responsibilities and pressures began to weigh on you. But you know what? You can't go back to being a kid, can you? Once you're an adult, you're an adult. Now, we have all known adults that act childishly. You ever known a childish adult? And when you meet somebody who's an adult who acts childishly, what do you say to them? Grow up. And why do we tell them to grow up? Because the reality is you cannot go back. 
Even if you want to be a child, you can't go back to being a child. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, no, we're not saying that simply because you're saved by grace, you can go back and live a life of sin. You are not that person anymore. You have been united to Christ. So grow up. You can't go back. So you might as well go forward. You died to Christ, so reckon yourselves dead to Christ. You're alive in Christ. Reckon yourselves alive in Christ and get on with the job of living like Christ. That's Paul's recipe for sanctification. One final illustration of this. John chapter 11. And then I'll let you go. John chapter 11 You know the story. It's the story of the death of Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus. You know that Jesus had received word that Lazarus was sick. And he turns to his disciples and he said, it's okay, this will not end in death. A couple of days later, Jesus said, let's go and... um, to Bethany, we've got to wake Lazarus up. And the disciples say, well, if he's been sick, he probably needs to sleep. Let's not bother him. And Jesus said, no, he's dead. Well, you, you said this wasn't going to end in death. Well, it doesn't ultimately, does it? Jesus gets there, and you all know the story. He finds Mary and Martha weeping at the tomb. He says, pull back the stone. Jesus himself weeps at the tomb of Lazarus because he knows this is a situation that's going to be repeated over and over again. But ultimately, what does Jesus do? He raises him. We're going to pick up the story at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the mouth of the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. That is a picture, Paul says, of what has happened to you and me. We were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and there was nothing that anybody could do for us, and there was nothing that we could do for ourselves. But God, who is rich in mercy, came and made us alive in Christ Jesus. Come forth, and we came forth out of the grave, as it were. But how does the story end? With Jesus giving an instruction to everybody untie him and let him go, unbind him, get rid of those grave clothes because those are the clothes for a dead man and this man is alive. Get rid of the sin in your life, reckon yourselves dead to sin because that's your old life. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Get on with the life that is yours in Christ. That's Paul's recipe for sanctification. So shall we continue in sin 
so that grace may abound by no means. You are not that person. Grow up. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul's words, for the reminder that grace is an amazing thing. It is grace that elects us. It is grace that predestines us. It is grace that calls us. It is grace that justifies us. It is grace that glorifies us. And we can now live a new life. We can reckon ourselves dead to sin because we have been bound to Christ, baptized into his death, but baptized into his new life. Grant us the grace to recognize this. Grant us the grace to realize we can't go back to that old life. Give us the grace to grow up and move on for Jesus' sake. Amen.